I think I should, oops, it's definitely on now, okay. <laughs> it is indeed a relief in many ways when elderly parents accept the Lord. We had the pleasure of seeing, or the joy really, of seeing my dad and Wayne's dad both come to the Lord at a very old age. But let's just now commit this time to the Lord. Father, we do thank you, first of all, for the blessing of being able to call you Father. We really do recognize that it's because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us upon the cross. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your goodness and your kindness towards us. And Father, I do want to thank you for your word And I pray now, Father, that you will take control, that you will indeed calm my nerves and you will help me to speak with clarity. And I pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit to do the work that he needs to do here today, that we can be drawn closer to you. And so, Father, I lift this time to you In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever received an email or a text message that you knew immediately was a scam? I recently received an SMS, actually, that said, Hi, it's links here. Your toll bill is overdue now. Please make payment on da-da-da-da as soon as possible to avoid penalty. And I thought, well, seeing that we don't have any toll roads here in South Australia, that was immediately a scam. But also, a couple of weeks ago, I received an email which at first glance looked as if it came from Telstra. It had the Telstra logo and it it seemed to be official. It said, Your recent direct debit payment was unsuccessful. And then it went on to say what could happen if I did not pay the due amount. Now this one caused me to think twice because I do use Telstra and I do have a direct debit. But then I thought, hang on, it was only the other day that I was checking my bank statement and I know that the Telstra thing was on it, so that was also a scam. But the Thessalonians had this particular problem. They had received a communication which supposedly had come from Paul. And in this message, in this communication, the message was that the day of the Lord had already come and this had really shaken their composure and had disturbed them. So there are several questions that we need to think about as we look at this passage. What were the Thessalonians experiencing that caused them to think that this communication could have been a genuine one? What is the day of the Lord? And who is the man of lawlessness who was mentioned? So first of all, I think we need to look back at both letters to the Thessalonians and to see some of the things that we can learn about them from those letters. 
If you've got your Bibles, it would be very helpful for you to have them because we're going to be looking at a number of passages a little bit later on that are necessary for you to follow in the Scriptures. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. In chapter 2, verse 14, it says, You suffered from your own countrymen, the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews. In chapter 3, verses 2 to 4, it said, We sent Timothy, who was our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way. And then when we looked at uh, the first chapter of the second letter last week, we saw, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Verse 5 said something about for which you are suffering. And verses 6 and 7 said, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. So we can see very clearly from these verses that the Thessalonians were suffering for their faith. Now you might remember back in Acts chapter 17, we learned that the Jews in Thessalonica had become extremely upset about the fact that Paul was sharing the gospel with the people there. And they caused so much trouble that Paul and Silas were sent away by night. And Paul and Silas had gone down south to a place called Berea. And when the Jews in Thessalonica found out that Paul was down there, they hurried 80-odd kilometres down the road so that they could stir up trouble there. They hated the, the message of the gospel so much that they were determined to cause as much trouble as they possibly could. So how does this suffering of the Thessalonians fit in with the day of the Lord? Now, the day of the Lord is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. It's actually a period of time. Sometimes in Scripture, God is very precise with his timing. For example, he told uh, when the children of Israel rebelled against God in the, in the wilderness, he told them that they would wander for 40 years. And when you look at the time words, they were exactly 40 years in the wilderness. But here... In this particular case, the day of the Lord appears to be a period of time, not just a day, but a period of time. And I want to read to you some of the verses from the Old Testament that speak about this day. I won't read all of them. I don't think you'd like to sit here all the time while I read all of them. But anyway, here's some of them. This is what Isaiah said. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. Be further down, he says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. 
Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Ezekiel says, For the day of the Lord is near, even the day it will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Joel said, It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Further on, he says, a day of darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Amos says, the people apparently were hoping for the day of the Lord. He says, why are you longing for the day of the Lord? For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion... A bear will meet him, or he goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom and no brightness? Zephaniah says, Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. A day of wrath a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And there are more verses which are along the same line. So I hope that you've picked up words like destruction, pain, anguish, fury, anger, anger, punishment, doom, darkness, gloom, wrath, trouble, distress, Words like that. So from scripture, we can say that this time is going to be a very, very terrible time. And so because of the suffering that the Thessalonians were undertaking, they believed the message that they were already experiencing the day of the Lord. And so Paul sought to encourage his readers by telling them that the day of the Lord will not come until, time word, until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So there's several things that we can learn about this man of lawlessness from this particular passage. First of all, just the fact that he is called the man of lawlessness. The word lawlessness indicates that he is fully associated with everything that is lawless according to God's word. And it was interesting that in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 26 verse, sorry, 23 verse 6, there's a prophecy about the Lord Jesus. And this is what it says. In his days, in other words, in Jesus' day, Judah will be saved Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. I think it was Jehovah Tzidkenu. But everything about the man of lawlessness is totally opposite to that of Jesus. Whereas Jesus is righteousness, this man is a man of lawlessness. He's totally and completely against God. In verse 3, it says, this man of lawlessness will be revealed. At some point in time, his true nature will be shown. 
I suspect that he will be a prominent world leader, but his true nature will be hidden. Also in verse 3, we see that he's doomed to destruction. Verse 4 tells us he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. Also in verse 4, he will set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Down in verse 7, we're told that something or someone is holding him back until the proper time for him to be revealed. Verse 8 tells us he will be overthrown by Jesus. And in verse 9, we're told that his coming will be in accord with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. So I thought we could perhaps do some cross-referencing to see what we could learn and as we do, we might pick up some uh, things from these other passages which line up with what we can see about him in Thessalonians. Now, the first passage that I want to turn to is Revelation chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, you can, you can turn to Revelation chapter 13. In verse 1, we are introduced to the dragon. And later on in Revelation, we're told that the dragon is Satan or the devil. We're also introduced to someone who is called the beast. And we'll just call him B1 for the time being. Verse 2 tells us that the dragon or Satan empowers the beast and gives him power his throne, and great authority. And from verse 5, we can see that this beast will exercise authority for 42 months, or three and a half years. And from verse 7, I think we can discern that he will have worldwide authority. From verse 6, going back to verse 6, we see he opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name, in other words, slander God's name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. And in verse 7, we're told that he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. So we might have already picked up some correlations down in verse 11 of the same chapter, we meet another beast. So we call him B2. Now this beast is in cahoots with B1. And later on in the book of Revelation, he's referred to as the false prophet. Now in verse 14 of Revelation 13, we're told that he, that's the second beast, ordered the inhabitants of the earth to set up an image of the beast, in other words, make an idol of some sort, and he orders the inhabitants of the earth to worship the beast. And anyone who refused to do so would be killed. Later on in the book, we do find that these two are captured, and they are actually thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, 
and that this will happen when Jesus returns to stand on the earth and to fight the battle of Armageddon. And from the time phrases that, uh, time phrases that we can see in Revelation, this will be at the end of that 42 months, the end of the three and a half years that B1 and B2 are in power. Okay? Okay, now go back to Daniel chapter 7. Back to the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 to 25, we're told about a little horn. And it's actually a person, but anyway, it's a little horn. He will wage war against the saints and defeat them until the Ancient of Days steps in. And the Ancient of Days appears to be a term referring to God. Verse 25 tells us several things. This little horn will speak against the Most High. In other words, he will talk against God. He will blaspheme God. He will oppress the saints. He will try to change the set times and law. In other words, he will do something regarding the worship that the Jews would like to be participating in. And it says that the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time, which again means three and a half years. Daniel chapter 11, verse 35, we read about a king. In other words, a ruler of some sort. We're told that this king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. In other words, he's got a certain time, but then it's going to end. Now, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27 Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offerings. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him." Seventy-sevens, many people believe, many scholars believe that this, these sevens is referring to periods of seven years. 
In other words, Daniel was given the prophecy that there were 490 years of uh, regarding, it says, your people and your holy city, in which God was going to deal with the Jews and deal with Jerusalem. And we're also told a little bit further on that uh, after, the 60, after the 62 sevens, so basically after a total of 69 sevens, after 483 years, the anointed one will be cut off. Some versions use the word Messiah. It has been determined or it has been calculated that from the issuing of the decree uh, that Artaxerxes made, to allow Nehemiah to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. From there to when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey is 483 years, almost to the day. We know that Messiah, Jesus, was put to death shortly after that. We also know from history that in AD 70, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. So according to this prophecy, there is still one seven, one period of seven years left to be fulfilled. The 69 years of 69 sevens are in our past. I believe that this other seven is still in our future. Now, it's interesting to note that this this ruler who is going to come, in verse 27, we are told that he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So it sounds like there's going to be a ruler who could trace his ancestry back into the, somehow back into the Roman Empire times, and he's going to make this covenant with the Jews, because we're talking about Jew, God's people, the Jews. We're not talking about Christians, we're talking about the Jews. Many people believe that this leader will give permission for the Jews to rebuild the temple because they long to have a temple so that they can go back to their way of worshipping. At the present moment, we don't have a temple in Jerusalem. So if you start to see a temple being built, better be ready, better be ready because the time is going to be very, very short. But anyway, it sounds like the Jews are going to be allowed to recommence their temple worship. But then we're told that in the middle of the seven, in other words, three and a half years through the uh, this seven-year period, he's going to stop. He's saying, no, you can't do that. And he's going to set up an abomination that causes desolation. What would be the greatest abomination to God? It would be to have an idol set up in the most holy place of the temple and for someone to come and say, I am God, worship me. So I really believe that it's at the midpoint of this seven-year period of time that the, uh, the beast, B2, will set up the idol and he say, now you worship me. If you don't, out, you're dead. So, putting some of these things together, and I must not get sidetracked too much, putting these things together, the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians, I believe, is B1 from Revelation 13. I believe he's the little horn from Daniel chapter 7. He's the king 
from Daniel 11, and he's the ruler who is to come from Daniel chapter 9. Basically, he is the Antichrist. Not an Antichrist, but he is the Antichrist. And as I said, I believe that it's at the midpoint of this seven-year period of time that the image is set up, that he says, I am God and you worship me. And it's after this, after this happens, that the day of the Lord will start. Because he, Paul said to the Thessalonians, the day of the Lord will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. So now we have the man of lawlessness revealing himself and then the day of the Lord. But as we go back to 2 Thessalonians, Paul told his readers that there were two other things that had to happen before the man of lawlessness was revealed. In verse 3, it said, until the rebellion occurs. Now, the word that's used for rebellion here is apostasia, from which the word apostasy comes. Now, the apostasy is a falling away, a defection. And it also says in verse 7, the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. The New American Standard says, now he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So I call him the restrainer. I personally believe that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Now, at the moment in history, he restrains mainly, not only, but mainly through Christians whom he indwells and through whom he works into society to hold back lawlessness. How will he be taken out of the way? Well, if the church is taken out in the rapture, the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way in the sense that his unique lawless, lawlessness restraining ministry through God's people is taken out of the way. So I suspect that the restrainer being taken out of the way will then open up the way for all kinds of lawlessness and anti-God behavior and thinking to really and truly spread and people will be very, very willing to accept the man of lawlessness. I think I could possibly explain it this way. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 5 that we are the salt of the earth. We know that salt is a preservative. It also has a cleansing uh, properties. Because if you have a cut or a graze and it starts to become infected and you bathe it or soak it in salt water, it can remove the infection. It can deal with the infection and so it, healing can take place. If you don't deal with the infection, sometimes it can get a lot worse and cause very, very serious problems. Now we as Christians are supposed to have a preservative cleansing effect on society. Historically, I think it's been that it's often Christians who've spoken out against social ills. I, there we sang Amazing Grace. I understand that the man who wrote that originally wrote it after he became a Christian. 
We know in our recent days, it's been mainly the Christians who have spoken out against uh, abortion, same-sex marriage, and euthanasia. So if we're taken out of the way, there's nothing or no one to speak up against social rules and behaviours. So I suspect, notice I said suspect, (laughs) I didn't say this is definitely, I suspect that the order of events will be the taking out of the way of the restrainer, the rebellion and the apostasy or rebellion will occur, the man of lawlessness will be revealed, and then the day of the Lord will come. So in light of all of this, what did Paul want the Thessalonians to do? Now if we go back to chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we see that he reminds them, They have been chosen by God. They had believed the truth. They had been saved. In other words, they had been justified. And if anybody's got a memory that goes back four weeks, I think you might remember we talked about that about four weeks ago. They had been justified. He wanted them to be sanctified through the work of the Spirit in their lives. He wanted them to be transformed. And he wanted this for them so that they could share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might remember in the first letter, he reminded them that no matter if they were physically dead or alive, when Jesus came in the clouds for the church, they would be glorified. So because they were to be sanctified because they were to be glorified what were they to do now in verse 15 he tells them to stand firm this seems to be an exhortation that Paul uses several times through the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 13 he says be on your guard stand firm in the faith This version says, be men of courage, but we could perhaps say, be people of courage, be strong. In Galatians 5.1, he said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. And Ephesians 6, therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after that, You have done everything to stand. Stand firm then. And there were a couple of other places where this phrase was used. One of the things that I thought was interesting is that this verb is in what they call a present imperative active. Now the present tense means that it's an habitual ongoing action. The fact that it was an imperative means it was a command. It's an order. And the fact that it was an active one, it means that it was an action that the people themselves had to do. So he's basically saying to the Thessalonians that you are, to, you are being ordered to continually, habitually stand firm, hold on to, the teachings that you have received from me, whether by word of mouth or by letter. 
And so this would indicate that the Thessalonians needed to know what Paul had taught them. And I'm sure he had been teaching them the word of God. And so they were to habitually, continually, through reading it and studying it, and make a deliberate and continuous effort to stand firm on what they saw and put it into practice. Put it into practice. And this was reflected when Paul says in verse 16 and 17, May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So it wasn't enough for them to just get head knowledge. They had to be put it in, putting it into practice. Basically, they were to remember that God loved them. Because of their love and because of his grace, he had saved them. And this had given to them a secure hope for the future. And now, in the present, his abiding presence in the form of the Holy Spirit would give them the encouragement that they needed to endure all the sufferings and persecutions that they were undergoing. He would give to them the strength to work out their faith in every good deed and word. Now, in the first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul gave some practical ways. I think it was Jamie who talked in particular about this. Some practical ways in which their faith was to be worked out. And in the next chapter of 2 Thessalonians, we will see some more instructions of how they were to work out their faith in their daily living. So if this was the case for the Thessalonians, how does that apply to us? Have you been chosen by God? Have you believed the truth? Have you been saved? If you can say yes, well then you have been justified. Therefore, we are to allow the Holy Spirit to do that work of sanctification within us. We are to allow him to transform us. And in the meantime, we are to be standing firm. Standing firm. We are to actively, daily hold on to the truths of Scripture. How many here have an iPhone or a smartphone? Could you put your hands up? Okay, keep your hand up if you think, and I put your hand up if you've got a phone like that. Put it up. I want to see something. <laughs> keep it up if you think you use your phone to its full potential. Ah, I thought that might be the case. Wonder why we don't use our iPhones to its full potential. Maybe we're not interested in finding out everything it does. Maybe we're not willing to put in the time and the effort to find out what it does. Maybe you think, well, it does what I want to do, and that's all. I'm not, that doesn't bother me. I wonder if we have the same attitude towards God's word. We're not willing to put in the time or the effort to find out what it says. We're not interested in it. 
We don't think we have any need for anything more. If this is the case, how are we going to stand firm in the faith when the hard times come? If we do not know what God's character is, if we don't know how he dealt with people in the past, how can we understand and know how he will deal with people, deal with us today? And I'm not talking about the terrible times like in the, uh, what this often referred to as the tribulation or the day of the Lord. But how are we going to stand firm when something like a serious illness strikes or the death of a loved one or unexpected financial problems or being involved in a terrible accident or when there's really bad family conflicts. We need to be continually seeking to grow in God's word so that we can stand firm no matter what comes against us. It's as we are standing firm in the faith that we come to understand and experience more of God's grace. It's as we stand firm that we are reminded that we have an eternal hope. And it's as we stand firm that we are enabled to honour him in every good deed and word. And as we do this, we can be a very powerful witness to the people around about us, people who don't know Jesus, people who face a terrible future. So the question, one of the questions is, are you willing to put in more effort, more time, so that you can stand firm and so you can honour him? I've tossed up whether to say something about this or not, but at the present moment, there is a great conflict in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. I don't understand a lot about prophecy and future events, but I do believe that what is happening there should be a wake-up call for us to be much more diligent in our walk with the Lord and much more diligent in our praying for those who do not know him. I really wonder how much longer we have. How much longer do we have before the Lord takes us out and before he really steps in and says, enough, enough. So can I encourage you to consider where you are what your priorities are. Is God really your God? Or is something or someone else much more important to you than seeking to grow in your relationship with him and live out your faith in him? We are the salt of the earth. We're supposed to be the light 
that's shining. How are we going? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have been so patient with us. Thank you for giving to us the time to hear your message. Father, we are very mindful that there are many people around about us who do not know you. A lot of us have family members. A lot of us have work colleagues, people like that who do not yet know you. And so, Father, I pray that you will really speak to our hearts and strengthen us and guide us so that we seek to be ministering to them by deed and by word so that they will come to know the Lord Jesus before it's too late. And so, Father, we lift ourselves to you. We thank you again for your patience. We thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. We want to praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.